I'm proud and happy to introduce uh, my friend and tonight's moderator, Joe Matthews. Mr. Matthews is a fourth-generation Californian. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and co-author of the forthcoming California Crack-Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. His previous book was The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Mr. Matthews is a columnist for the Daily Beast, and his work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Please welcome Mr. Joe Matthews. Welcome, fellow secessionists. <laughs> I shouldn't call it secession. Um, we could rebrand the idea in various ways, uh, ending the occupation after 160 years, or we're a spin-off, America's cheers, and we're Frasier. Before we get more into this subject, um, I want to say a quick note of thanks to all the folks at Zocalo, uh, Dulce, Laura, Swati, Gregory, to the Autry, to Bob Hertzberg, who very much wanted to be here and who helped me conceive uh, uh, this evening, and to my wife's uncle, Alexander Wilde, who, who put me in touch with one of these uh, panelists from whom I've already learned very much, and we'll find out more about that. This is a moment of great discontent in California. The, the rest of the country has been very critical of us. Some of our elected leaders have been very critical of the federal government. You know, we've been on the business end of a lot of very dismissive portraits of, of ourselves, portraits of ourselves. But at the same point, you know, this is still a state of great weight. You know, California is a place where more venture capital is invested here each year than the other 49 states combined. We're home to 17 of the top 30 American technology companies, including uh, firms such as Google, Facebook, and YouTube. More than three times as many patents are granted to Californians each year than to the residents of the most next most inventive state. We have five of the nation's top 10 universities by research funding. Uh, if we were our own country, we would be home to more Nobel laureates than any nation in the world with the exception of the United States. Our economy is larger than that of Brazil or India or Korea or the whole of Africa. Our state is larger in area than Germany or Japan. There's more residents than Australia and New Zealand combined, more residents than all of Scandinavia. We have some weight. So I think at this time of discontent, at a time we're still a pretty big and important place, it's, it, this is an opportunity, this question is in some ways a real question, but it's an also an opportunity to do some thinking about California, about you know, who and what we are, about how we could be a better entity, and also about our sort of fraught relationship with the federal government. And this is an underlying issue in the news that I hope we'll touch on, whether it's the stimulus, um, has the federal government done enough to support our budget and stimulate our economy, has it done too much? whether it's health care legislation, it's coming implementation. Is that good for California, which has nearly one-fifth of the uninsured in the United States, or does it create special burdens for us, or both? Fortunately, we have a panel that can talk about a lot of these issues. And, and um, I want to start by talking a little bit about history with, um, with uh, Peter Richardson. Peter uh, wears many hats. He, he teaches California culture at San Francisco State, chair of the California Studies Association, and the author of a couple books, including A Bomb in Every Issue, How the Short, Unruly Life of Ramparts Magazine Changed America, and American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. He's the editorial director at uh, Polypoint Press, which publishes, publishes trade books on politics and current affairs. And I, I, I asked him to come here tonight because of, of one of those books, the, the Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. For those who don't know, um, one of the, 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 the best writers about California, in his 1949 book, California, The Great Exception, 
you know, I think it's probably quoted more than any book about California and talks about our, our, our strange and peculiar origins and, and, and how, you know, we're exceptional. What, what, what did McWilliams mean by that? What is the history of California that makes us, you know, different, a great exception? Probably from the outset, California was different from almost every other state. Um, it was conceived really by, by the gold rush, and the gold rush became the, the template for the, for the state's development and its prosperity. What that meant was that it started essentially in, in anarchy. Um, it was very remote. It was not connected to the rest of the country, and so it was forced to to be very innovative. It turned inside to get what it needed. It had no coal, uh, which, is, which is what powered the, the rest of the nation. So California developed the oil industry. But really mining and gold mining in particular was the thing that he thought, Kerry McWilliams thought, distinguished the development of the, of the state. And not only the state's economy, but also, or its, its concept of growth, but also its society. It instantly became a multicultural society before we ever had that word. California drew people from all around, um, all around the world, and so you had this, this unique population from the outset. There's a couple other ways. I mean, it, we didn't grow. We weren't annexed. We were never a frontier in the usual way. We sort of entered the, the United States as, as a republic, as a kind of fully formed and isolated um, society with a uh, you know, with, with, with not a strong Puritan ethic, uh, it turns out. Um, there was no sort of work hard and, uh, you know, play by the rules and everything will work out great. That was not, that was not the spirit of, of early California. It was get it as fast as you can and, and enjoy yourself. So there were a lot of different ways that uh, California differed. And, and that was why... McWilliams called uh, California the great exception. I mean, that was yeah. the beginning of it. He, he went on to explore a lot of different facets of California's exceptionalism. So we sort of come into this country as a, as a very hastily formed nation. Um, um, a nation, uh, McWilliams wrote a nation demanding what it had the power to take. Sure. You know, what is that, what has that meant at different moments in our development? And I mean, are, is there an issue where now you think of oh, California yeah. as that acting as a nation? Well, well, McWilliams noted that there was always a kind of antagonism between California and, and the federal government in particular, uh, and that, that not constant state, but, but that flared up from time to time. And just recently, you can see things. I think uh, the state's relationship with FERC during the rolling blackouts might have been that kind of situation. I think um, the uh, the EPA what, what waiver, for oh, the uh, the Federal Energy Regulation Commission that we appealed to to try to get Enron off our neck, um, and the and the Bush administration, of course, took took a big pass on that. That would be one example. I think the the EPA waiver for greenhouse gas emissions might be a, a recent one that people remember. I suppose uh, another one would be, well, I think the big one actually right now is uh, uh, the initiative we passed, the Compassionate Use Act of 1996 and medical marijuana. That, that's open warfare, I think. That, that was, that was a, a very strong message to the federal government that we were, as McWilliams said, that we, we, we are demanding what we have the power to take. 
And um, as that issue continues to unwrap, uh, unroll, and it's doing so, I guess, in different ways, in different parts of the state, I've been reading about the way it's playing out here in Los Angeles. It's playing out very differently in the Bay Area where I live. But it seems to me that is uh, one of those things that, that McWilliams would have been probably writing about and uh, maybe the next big thing in all caps. Um, well, jumping off from the, the antagonism between the state and the federal government, I think antagonism want, makes me want to, to jump to Derry Schrago, um, uh, one of our, uh, our states. <laughs> one of our states um, um, uh, uh, been one of our finest uh, um, political strategists. He's now a, a partner in the public law and pol policy strategies of Sonnenschein, Nath, and Rosenfall, the managing partner of Sonnenschein's L.A. office. Um, and he's, uh, again, been a leading consultant to all sorts of political campaigns, companies, Native American tribes, grassroots and nonprofit organizations. Uh, he's managed five statewide races in California, including three for governor and two for the U.S. Senate. School bond campaigns here in Los Angeles, he is probably best know, known for. Um, but one also important thing about him, see, he's seen this from both sides, is he has worked both for the state and the federal government. Um, he was... Um, uh, he was Deputy California Insurance Commissioner. He was Chief of Staff to the Chairman of the California Board of Equalization in Washington. He was a senior staffer for um, Senator Birch uh, by um, and at the Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs. He's worked for uh, many members of the U.S. Congress. So you've seen this from both sides. What, when you're in state government, you know, what annoys you most about the folks at the federal government? Just about and, everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are the grievances that have real weight? for the state looking at the federal government in your view. Well, I'm, I was listening to your list, and I think, God, we're good. I mean, <laughs> you know, the fundamental concept in Cal, and I happen to be fifth generation, right? So, yeah. so I mean, the, the, you know, just leave us alone, basically. Um, we're big, we're bad, we do what we do, and, and we do it well. And I think that there is a theme that you're hearing now that we don't get our sh fair share of federal funds. Right. And, you know, that's true, but so what? We're not well-liked in Washington. Why is that? Because we're big, we're bad, we're California, we do what we do. I mean, we're just resented. I think all of us in the audience, all of us in this hall know that everybody outside of California uh, doesn't like us a whole lot. Um, I think that the, my, my definition of, of certainly an Angelino, if not a Californian, because I'm actually from up north originally, is that you know that most people outside of the place don't like us and you just don't care. I think that uh, the theme in California has been we want more from the federal government, but not more regulation. We want our money back. And I think that the theme in Washington is, God, they're weird and we don't like them a whole lot and they're greedy. And um, I've actually run campaigns in other places like Indiana and Washington State where we're really disliked. Um, my first day on the job running a campaign for governor in the state of Washington, I took a phone call from an AM talk show host by mistake. And I was on the air and he said, his first question to me was, who are you to be coming up from California and cal <laughs> Californicating our politics? I mean... Really? And I have to tell you, they don't distinguish between Eureka and like L.A. or San Diego. It's just like you're from California, we don't like you. So I think that there is a great deal of tension. It is, it is inevitable because, let's face it, we don't have more senators than the 500,000 people, people plus sheep in Wyoming. Um, they get two senators, we get two senators. Uh, in order to create this nation, uh, we cobble together a system that puts us at a tremendous disadvantage structurally. 
the 30 plus million people in the state, whatever number we're up to now, yeah. two votes in the Senate. The 500,000 people in Wyoming and the sheep, two votes. <laughs> and so we tend to be uh, uh, at the federal level, we get the short end of the stick. That's inevitable. But I don't know that the, 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 the resentment of, of, of D.C. is just all that deep here because we tend to forge our own path anyway. Does it show up? I mean, you, you, you do a lot of, look at a lot of public opinion research, show up a lot of focus groups. How, how deep is the feeling, you know? There's a, it's not, it's not um, amongst voters. I'd, I've never sensed a, a sort of a, a, a real hatred of Washington. I see that in Indiana. I saw that a lot because in Indiana, they really hate the federal government. Here, I think it's more, it, the, we view the federal government as very distant. And I've often said that I don't, you know, people make fun of us for being very wacky liberals. And I don't think in California, most of us are liberal. I think we're mostly libertarian. I think the basic uh, concept in the state is that, you know, government can't shoot straight, so the less the better, and just leave us alone and we'll be fine. And so I think a lot of voters uh, tend to just tune out Washington and figure that what really matters is what goes on here. If you were fashioning a campaign, I guess it would have to be an advisory initiative, right? Because we, we couldn't do it without Congress letting us. Yeah. But if we, you know, if that was, a, you know, you know, the people hereby resolve, we'd like to, we'd like to separate. Like, we'd like to be our own country for, in a friendly yeah. manner. What would, how would you run that campaign? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, let's say that we wouldn't secede because we don't think that. We, we, would, we would do a spinoff. We would just divest ourselves of the other 49 states. Um, <laughs> you know, you play offense. You don't play defense. I think that one of the reasons that it's hard to make that argument with voters is because we know, and other people give us credit for this, that we, as I said, we forge our own path, we innovate, uh, we create things that the rest of the, state, the states then adopt. Um, and, and uh, you know, without benefit of really listening to voters and what they think about the idea, um, uh, you know, fundamentally, if you said to me, okay, you're going to have to run this campaign and we're going to get rid of the other 49 states, we're going to jettison them because they're really like an annoyance. Uh, I think I would just say that, that um, um, there's nothing that they give us. They don't give us anything we need, and they can be an impediment, so to help. Not them. national yeah. defense, you know, because we're, we're paying for that and then some, well, right? you know, I mean, th that's a very interesting subject because the last couple of wars, right. Vietnam and Iraq, have not been incredibly popular in this state. If right now, we've, we've, right. we've, we've uh, gone one way and the nation has gone another. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we certainly, um, you know, create our own political weather system in this, in this state. And so I think it's really a question not so much of dislike, because as I said, I've worked in states where there's active dislike of the federal government. I think it's just like they're irrelevant. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, let's um, uh, jump jump from that to um, to uh, to Abe Lowenthal, who's a professor at USC, um, a founder and former president of the USC-based Pacific Council on International Policy, and a, and a real expert in in international issues, particularly in Latin America, um, who's wrote a, a, a terrific and um, and I dare say underappreciated book. Um, called Global California, which came out last year. I've I've been quoting from it um, uh, and stealing uh, good ideas from it for for since the six months I was turned on to it. Um, it's really worth checking out. And and he's looked at at research on California's global role and relationships, the international interests of this Western region of the United States, and 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 the book makes a really strong argument. Since you know the federal government is irrelevant to us, we should. We should do more. We should we should think more of ourselves as a nation, and 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 particularly in developing. We have in, distinct interests in terms of policy, uh, foreign policy, immigration policy, trade policy that are very different than West Virginia's. And and I wonder, you know, um, 
you know, what, you know if, if folks were to take your advice, what sorts of things might we do? I mean, what does it, what does it mean to think of California globally and, and what sort of things should we be thinking and strategizing about and doing? Sure. I'd like to respond to that question, but if you, if you yeah. allow me, I'd like to begin with a comment on, on some of what uh, sure, Peter please, said. Please. Uh, because in, in his review that was triggered by your question about Karen Williams, it led me to, to think, you know, when, when California first became a state in that period you were talking about, it was really born with an international DNA. The population was international, by which I mean some 40% of the residents of California when it became a state had been born in another country not in the United States, not in one of the other territories that became part of the United States, but around the world. And the economy, as he hinted, was much more connected to the international economy than it was to the economy of the United States east of the Rockies. It was a very international economy. That was the case in the late 19th century. Uh, it changed in the 20th century, and as California grew and grew and became the nation's largest state, by the middle of the 20th century, California was not very international at all. Its population was not internationally based. In 1968% of the population of California were people born in another country. That, that a function of restrictive immigration policies? It's immigration to California from elsewhere in the United States. Of course, the Dust Bowl uh, sure. phenomenon and the, from the South during the war and so on, and restrictive immigration. But only 8% of the population of California in 1960 were people born outside the United States. And the economy became, uh, as he said, first a lot of internal development, including what you were saying about petroleum and so on, but also very much integrated to the national economy uh, and not very international. There were a few exceptions, but basically not very international. What I think is very interesting is that the California of the mid-20th century doesn't exist anymore. We have, in fact, recovered our international DNA. We have a tremendously international population. 27% of the residents of California today were born in another country. And if you include people and, the, and at least one of their parents, it's half the population of California that was born in another country. And the economy is tremendously integrated with the world economy uh, in terms of exports and imports and investment and talent. Every sector of the economy you can think of is very international in, in many respects. But the attitudes, the policies, the institutions, the habits of thought that we have in California are pretty much still, with honorable exceptions, uh, the California of the mid-20th century. That is, we haven't evolved into thinking about what kind of place we are and how we are affected by our tremendous international qualities and characteristics, we haven't evolved uh, ways of thinking and acting that, are, that, that, that are, are, are tied to what we really are today. So that's what motivated me to write this, this book. We are so powerful uh, uh, demographically, politically, economically, technologically, culturally, uh, with many of the dimensions and qualities of a, of a big country, as you were saying with some of the statistics, you cited some of them uh, taken from the book. Uh, but we don't act and think as if we had all that power. And we don't think consciously about what our international interests are and what we can do to advance them. Now, somebody, uh, you know, people who are conscious of how our constitutional system works, 
will respond to that by saying, well, that's all theoretical because you can't have your own foreign policy. You can't be your own country. Your question was, you know, why don't we secede? But, you know, it's not that easy. Uh, we are one of the 50 states of the Federal Union, and we can't uh, simply have a foreign policy of our own. Uh, we don't like the war in Iraq or in Vietnam. We can't just secede from it, and so on and so forth. But my point is that a place that has as much power, as many international ties and connections, and uh, as much talent as California and Californians do have, if it could identify its international interests, it ought to be able to find ways that are consistent with the Constitution to advance those interests. And I set myself to thinking about that, and that really leads to your question. Because think about what our international interests are. We could have a long discussion just on that, and the time doesn't permit. But for example, uh, being able to enhance the benefits and distribute the benefits more fairly of globalization and reduce, mitigate, and compensate for the costs and risks of globalization is an international policy issue that affects Californians greatly. Managing the flow of immigration so as to enhance the benefits that immigrants bring to us while reducing, mitigating, compensating for the costs and risks and strains of immigration is another big policy issue for us. Managing the re complex relationship with Mexico at our border. Uh, if California were an independent country on your hypothesis and it had its own foreign policy, Mexico would be right up at the top of international priorities because it's a big country right there that affects us in so many ways. What we always do is look around. Um, the national government in Washington hasn't typically put Mexico very high up, you know, because they're thinking about a whole lot of other things. So aren't there things we could do on issues like that? We could think of others, but that's enough of an agenda. Aren't there things we could do? Well, I think there are. First of all, we could certainly exert our influence on the federal process um, in a w much more concerted and intelligent way that we do. We have 53 members of the House of Representatives and two senators with a lot of seniority. They may still only be two like Wyoming, but they have a lot of influence. If, if the California delegation, which I know doesn't typically operate as a delegation, but if we could think of getting them together to really discuss and analyze what are the international interests of Californians and try to come up with a policy that, if not unanimously, at least two-thirds of them supported, and I don't think that's impossible, on immigration policy, for example, that would have a fundamental uh, effect breaking the logjam that exists in Washington. That happened on NAFTA years ago. California really was the margin of victory uh, of the NAFTA debate. So we could do that at the federal level. At the state level, without violating the Constitution, you take, again, immigration policy. A lot of the whole question of how to deal with immigration has to do with the integration of immigrants, with uh, uh, really figuring out how to get the most out of their presence and how to reduce the 
the costs associated with their presence. And there's lots that we can do about it, that at the local and state level. We do some, but there's a lot more we could do. For example, I mean, what, what could we be doing specifically, immigrant? What might an immigration policy look like for the state? Uh, an integration policy would, for example, uh, I'll put it as clearly as I can. We have a lot of immigrants in California, including a lot of illegal, undocumented, unauthorized, or whatever you want to call them, immigrants. I have been talking with people on a continuing basis, and I have yet to identify anyone who really thinks that the undocumented population is going to leave and go back to their home country. I don't know whether there are people here who disagree with that, but I think virtually everybody understands that they're not going to leave. So then the question becomes, for us as Californians, and for us who are not recent immigrants, what's more in our interest? To have a, a, an immigrant population that is undereducated, unhealthy, unlicensed to drive, uninsured, unable to take out credit, unable to have bank accounts for lack of a proper identification, unable to get the kind of education that will make them more productive, uh, unintegrated into our political system, and continue to speak a foreign language. Is that better for us? Or would we be better off if they were more English-speaking, more educated, more productive, uh, licensed to drive, insured, healthier, uh, more able to participate fully in our community? Well, you know, I think that's a slam dunk question, really. But a lot of the things that go on really are pushing the first policy, even though it makes no sense. It's, it's on some theory that maybe that'll stop them from coming, which hasn't worked out yet. Uh, but if we, a lot of the things I just talked about are things we can do at the local level. We can have better at, uh, English, uh, adult English uh, programs. We can uh, solve the problem of uh, licenses and so on and so forth. We can have the use of the Mexican or other uh, consular identity cards for bank accounts and so on and so forth. And these things should not be controversial. They should be a strategic approach to immigrant integration. Let me um, bring uh, uh, David Diane at, at this point um, um, and get him involved in this. He's a, one of our state's leading uh, uh, commentators and writers on, on state and national issues. You can catch him on his personal blog, D-Day, uh, on Digby's Hullabaloo. Um, and on a, a favorite website of mine, progressive site, Calitics. Um, he also writes and reports for the news desk at Firedog Lake. He's been in all the big newspapers. You can hear him on NPR and Pacifica. He's a former delegate to the California Democratic Party. Why, why the politics of, you know, why don't we think about these sorts of issues politically? Why aren't we, you know, why isn't, why isn't this, you know, you occasionally talk about just, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger say, we are a nation state. Um, and he'll sign a climate change treaty with Tony Blair. But, but why isn't this more part of our conversation? And, and Well, I don't know that it isn't. It, you know, when I was thinking about this panel, I, I was thinking how interesting it was that, that, you know, this was at least talked about at an extremely high level last year. Uh, the, the craziest thing I saw about the budget was an article in the Wall Street Journal 
where Mike Janess, the, the finance, former finance director for Arnold Schwarzenegger, was quoted as saying that at one point during the budget crisis, he looked in the state constitution and the federal constitution to see if we could go back to territorial status. <laughs> and what that would allow us to do is somehow maybe run a deficit or coin money. I don't, I don't know what he was looking for. But, but um, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that, that there is this, you know, self-concession. I mean, that was kind of a way out <laughs> of, of, of the, you know, box canyon that we got ourselves into. But, you know, I think you see on the local level, uh, there are certain ways where communities are conceiving of themselves in, in perhaps a different way. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, you know, in the city of San Francisco, there is, through the community health centers there, what amounts to a universal care program that isn't even single payer. It's more like socialized medicine. If you are in the city of San Francisco and you can pay a nominal fee and you're a resident, you get care at, at, at any one of these universal care centers paid for by a tax, I believe, on restaurants. If you leave the limits of San Francisco city and county proper, you lose your universal care. And, and that, that kind of sounds like San Francisco is its own country, at least at the healthcare level. Um, you know, there are similar things around, uh, uh, you know, the issue that, that Peter brought up about, uh, about uh, marijuana. You know, I mean, uh, when I, I, I live in Venice, when I stroll Venice Beach, it's, it's unclear that marijuana is illegal. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, so let me let me um, let me jump to a slightly different subject. I've okay. seen you write a lot about was last. You mentioned last year mm -hmm. the you know here's our state in this very bad situation, running out of cash. You know, it's the this biggest biggest state in the union. You know, eighth largest economy in the world. You know, we're going to have to do. You know, we we've got budget talks where you're going to have to do things that are going to hurt our economy. And by extension, the, the America's raising taxes, cutting spending. Um, you know, people like Bill Lockyer, the state treasurer, the governor, the leader of the assembly go to, to Washington and say, help us, President Obama, who this state voted for. We're finally on the right side. We, we voted for, you know, 60%. And, and they, you know, give us the stiff arm you know, despite those 53 members of Congress. What, what happened there? Why don't, why, don't we, why don't we get help in that right. situation? Well, it, it's, it's quite interesting. And, and um, you know, I, I think people have to understand what we were asking for right. because there's, there's this, this notion that California was asking for a bailout, you know, the, the common parlance. What California was asking for at that time, at least Bill Lockyer, as I understand it, was to stop getting gouged by major, major banks. Um, the, the idea being that credit rating agencies were dumping our credit rating, uh, raising our interest rates, uh, so uh, we would have to borrow money at a, at a far higher rate. Um, on the belief that California would potentially default on its obligations. If you read the California State Constitution, it is nearly, uh, I'm not even gonna say nearly, it is impossible for California to default on its obligations. You have to pay off debt service. It's right under education, essentially. We would have to get rid of every, uh, all uh, state participation in prisons, in healthcare, in human services, in virtually everything before we could you know, default on one dime of that debt service. So 
you know, the bondholders know that, and it was this sort of game where they would say, oh, I don't know, you might default, so, you know, all of a sudden the margins can come up. What Bill Lockyer wanted the, 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 the federal government to do is to essentially provide uh, a guarantee, which would be a guarantee in name only because of the issues that I just mentioned in terms of defaulting, uh, similar to, you know, what was done to New York City, uh, eventually, after the drop dead, they the eventually... The 1970s. Yeah, yeah after so in the were. 1970s. You know, everyone remembers Ford to New York City drop dead, but they eventually mm-hmm. did that. And, and then, as you said, uh, the federal government said no. Um, I think there are political pressures. Uh, the, the idea, you know, the word bailout got out very, very quickly. Um, it, was, it was sort of misinterpreted and misused. Uh, and uh, they didn't want to risk sort of the political... Uh, fallout from, uh, you know, helping one state over others, I suppose. You know, and, and we see the results of that today. I mean, we're at 12.6% unemployment, and we've, we've gotten rid of many more public employees, teachers, fire, uh, police personnel than is, is we needed to. Is that the federal to. government's fault, a lot of that? Well, the federal government, certainly when they came in, were interested in returning uh, the country to an economic recovery. You have this... Uh, issue where they created this stimulus package and tried to, you know, create uh, uh, this recovery. Uh, and yet, at the very end of that, $100 billion was chopped off that would have gone directly to state, you know, fiscal stabilization. We are not the worst state, by the way, in terms of our, our, our fiscal hull. Uh, there are several others out there, Arizona and Nevada, which are right nearby, um, which, which have just as many problems. Um, if you do not, you know, taking away that $100 billion had the effect, essentially, of, of you know, canceling out uh, what the federal government was trying to do. It was trying to bring back an economic recovery. It was trying to increase aggregate demand. And the states did the opposite. It was countercyclical. And, and so, you know, is it the federal government's obligation? Uh, you know, there are reasonable arguments on both sides. But... Uh, the goal of the federal government was to, you know, increase aggregate demand and try to, you know, increase public spending because nobody else was spending. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we ended up getting the opposite, at least in the case of California. So a question for the kind of the, the whole panel, I mean, jumping off from that. So here's this reality where we're not very popular in the other states. Um, it, it would actually be in the best, in, in our interest and perhaps the interest of the country for us to get more help. But um, it's not popular to do that. And I mean, in this context last year, you began to hear some voices raise the question of, of uh, you know, maybe, you know, why don't we just run off on our own? I remember talking to Governor Schwarzenegger on a couple occasions said it would just, you know, this would all go away if I could just print my own money. You know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, you know, a, a greater independence. Uh, I mean, you know, what are there? Let's let me ask, pose this question: Would there be any drawbacks to us if we were to to splitsville? I think yes. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I mean, um, you know, I suppose we could smack a tariff on everything that comes out of the port of Los Angeles and 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 you know make back our money in a hurry. But um, but as an but, independent you know, country, wouldn't we be healthier? We you, have a lower debt to GDP ratio, you know, you than the pra- country as a whole. If you, know? you look practically, I think, yeah. you know, given our 
our fiscal outlook. We do not have a backup maybe by the federal government. We, we, you know, I think the IMF would be knocking on our door the day after the, we uh, 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 announced our, our independence and would try to force in some sort of austerity uh, regime uh, to, to you know, eliminate this, this, this persistent structural deficit. What, Dare you? I, I'm thinking I don't want to have to use a passport to go to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, the way things are going, we may have to anyway. So, you know, when, when, when TSA requires that, then maybe I'm for secession. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm listening to all this, and I think it's very fascinating. And I'm thinking, and again, I mean, I... They've worked in a lot of other states. Indiana is a, politically is about as different as California as you can imagine, right? right? And Washington State's a whole other thing, depending on whether you're in the east part or the west part. And I'm thinking, in a place like Indiana, they deeply resent the feds because the feds come in and make them do things they don't want to do. It's like being in the south, we had to integrate the black people and the white people, and they didn't like that, right? And I'm thinking, okay, what do the feds make us do in California that we don't want to do? And maybe there'll be some folks in the audience who can think of something or maybe spend, some of the Spend panelists. money on prisons that we would maybe uh, rather spend I don't elsewhere. Know. I mean, Fix our prisons. I, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, the prisons are abysmal, right? We deserve right. that. So, but I mean, fundamentally, I think the whole notion is, and I was referring to this earlier, that we impose our will on, on the rest of the country. We're the ones who p passed the Clean Car Bill in 2002, and it was historic, and it led to all this discussion about global warming and, and ending our reliance on petroleum. We're the ones who tend to innovate, and we ultimately, because we're so persuasive, um, uh, impose our will on the rest of the country. So there may be a list of grievances that come from the fact that the feds make us do things we don't want to do, but compared with a lot of other states I've worked in, that's not the notion here. So I'm thinking, why bother to go through this? We're ahead of the feds. We're not behind the feds. Abe, you want to get in on this? Yeah, uh, I'm the professor on the panel, but we professors are are impatient with absolutely academic questions like the one you're posing. And I think the, the last comment that was made is exactly in the spirit I wanted to emphasize. Uh, because let's be practical. We're, we're not going to be an independent country. But quoting another of the things our governor said, uh, that's <laughs> undoubtedly in your book, uh, I remember listening to him give the State of the State speech uh, a couple of years ago where he said, now let's talk about climate change. The first thing that has to change is the climate in Washington, which prevents the federal government from dealing adequately with a major threat that has to be dealt with, that affects us here. And we can't wait for the federal government to solve this problem. We have to do what we can here to have an impact on it. And that's really what the automobile emissions thing, which precedes uh, uh, the current governor. But in any case, it's part of a tradition of innovation that you're referring to. And I think that's exactly what we need to do on a range of issues. I, I don't know a lot about these financial issues, but on the international policy questions, you take, for example, uh, the border with Mexico. That's a very complex and important issue. Uh, it is not seen adequately from the distance of Washington or Mexico City. Uh, it's seen much more adequately from Texas and California and the, the, the states of Mexico. And, uh, and the Pacific Council had a task force chaired by Alan Burson, uh, who then had... So the former uh, U.S. attorney and school superintendent in San Diego. Yeah. Uh, who, who chaired our task force. Then he went into the government. He's now commissioner of immigration, uh, of customs and, and immigration. Uh, and, and border protection, uh, and so you know, pr practical p 
position to do things about this, but there are things that in the San Diego area and uh, on the other side can be done to improve what happens at the crossing points, to improve uh, the, the uh, environment and uh, education and public health on both sides of the border that don't require federal action, that can be done. And we should be doing as much innovation along those lines as we can and not think of this as something, you know, you're talking about hostility to Washington. I think the most important thing that uh, uh, you said was that mainly the attitude has not been so much hostility as, you know, let them stay as far away from us as we can. We have a lot that we'd just like to do. But we need to follow up on that by actually doing the things. Yeah. Hey, on this, Joe, I mean, uh, this is the this idea is, is the kind of thing that Carrie McWilliams would call perilous remedies for present evils. And we <laughs> Californians like that. The dramatic, the silver bullet, let's get this off uh, fixed in, in, in one stroke with our tremendous imagination and our penchant for innovation. And it doesn't always serve us that well. I mean, there, there are some little tiny things that we could do, and they're probably saying in Washington, why don't you do this? For example, one reason we pay higher interest rates um, for our um, loans is we have a lot of tax limits. We like to pass tax limits. And every time we do that, uh, we become riskier in the, in the eyes of Wall Street because the reason Wall Street likes to lend states money is because when it's time to pay them back, states can raise taxes. They have that power. Every time we limit that power, Wall Street says, that's going to cost you a little bit more because you just made yourselves a little bit riskier. There's a lot of little dull things like that. Now, I know, you know, Prop 13 and whatnot is very controversial. That wouldn't be a simple thing to do. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe on balance, we, we want those tax limitations. But we shouldn't be surprised if we pay slightly higher rates on our loans. I mean, we could do a little better. Um, just here without, without going to Washington to govern ourselves better. I don't think McWilliams or anybody else maybe thinks that we're a fantastic model of good government. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... You I, know, I, I, we, we're great in spite yeah, of that. Yeah. If, yeah. if California were indeed a country, it would be one of the most pathetically governed countries <laughs> in, in all of the world. <laughs> How could we pull together better? I mean, I remember as an LA Times reporter being sent out to the desert, to the Coachella Valley, to go try to crash a meeting of the California congressional delegation. Uh, this is 0405, and, and it was so hard to get, they, they wouldn't meet all together themselves. And to do it, you know, David Dreyer and Zoe Lofgren, I think, had to go get a grant from the Annenberg Foundation to convene the meeting, and I tried to get in, and David Dreyer, you know, saw me and said, please go away, this is the most sensitive negotiation I've ever been a part of, and the Capitol Police actually escorted me <laughs> to the edge of the uh, golf resort. Um, I mean, how do we get, you know, I mean, is there any ideas out there, concepts for sort of creating a greater sense of Californianness, so we at least pull together, you know, in our own in our own defense, or at least to get more out of the feds? Well, I mean, there was certainly a lot of talk this year about, you know, once again, silver bullet kind of solutions, uh, many of which I believe fizzled. But, you know, this idea of creating a constitutional convention, and we'd all get our powdered wigs out and 
create a new constitution for the state of California, which if we became a country, I guess that would, that would have to happen as well. I've heard um, there are some, uh, some people in the inland uh, uh, counties talking about uh, the exact opposite of this discussion, going smaller, breaking the state up into other states. Uh, there's, of course, the traditional sort of north-south divide, but also the, you know, the sort of inland Chile option, the, uh, <laughs> the, the you know, having a, a coastal state and, a, and an inland state. You know, but I, I, I do think there, there, you know, the, the idea of perilous <laughs> remedies is, I, I think, a, a, a good one here. But in terms of, you know, a better Californianess, it, it, it's interesting to what, to what uh, Derry was saying, you know, that, that, that the federal government doesn't, doesn't really like us, but yet, you know, we are the federal government. I mean, we, we have the Speaker of the, the, the House. We have more uh, uh, committee chairs than any other state by a wide, wide margin. Some of the most powerful committees are run by Californians, uh, both in the House and the Senate. Um, and, and, and actually, I, what I've heard is that, 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 you know, we're starting to get a little bit more in terms of our fair share, and maybe that could be a result of what has happened over the last uh, you know, four to six years. One quick word from Abe, and then let's go to audience questions here. Uh, well, this might be a nice transition to the audience question, <laughs> because uh, what I was thinking was, w- when I uh, launched an organization called the Pacific Council on International Policy to bring people together to discuss international issues on the West Coast, one of my best friends said, well, it's a great idea, but it might not work. Because in California, he said, everything grows, but nothing connects. <laughs> and this issue of how to bring us together, how to connect, is really a fundamental question for California. And it has a lot to do with the, the, the culture and the way, I mean, a lot of the things that were said earlier in the panel. And I think this organization, Zocalo Public Square, is a perfect example of what the state needs a lot more of. That is bringing people together to discuss serious issues, not imposing a political litmus test on people first that they have to be, you know, a liberal Democrat or a Tea Party person or what have you, but people from different perspectives discussing what to do about concrete issues. And we should really do a lot more of that in California. Uh, I, I personally would like to see more done on international issues, but there are a lot of issues go around. And uh, that's why I think it's so important to have these kinds of exchanges. Hi, my name's Josh. Um, I was wondering, how much do we give out to the federal government, and how much do we take in? And what's the disparity with, uh, in relation to other states? Um, I mean, the, the last number I heard was more like 80 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah. We get back, right? Yeah, we get back 80 cents for every dollar we pay in taxes to the federal Though government. Though I should note, and, and as Barbara Boxer and I had a conversation about this uh, a little while back, that under the stimulus, uh, we're getting about a buck forty. Though everyone is now, every state is getting more from the Fed in this in this budget year and the previous budget year than they did previously. And I, I think they stopped keeping track of that data some time ago. The eighty-one <laughs> cent figure I remember from the early two thousands. And I don't think they keep track of the data that way anymore because I went to a source to try to check it before this panel, actually, and uh, found out you can't, you can't get that number anymore. So, but that is the most current one, 81 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Hello, my name is Ardeth, and I have a concern that has not been addressed, and that is what do we do about water and the Colorado mm. River if we uh, start talking about becoming an independent nation? 
Yeah, I, I, I just very quickly, I, I just wanted to say that, that at the very end of the book that Joe mentioned by Kerry McWilliams, California, The Great Exception, he, he foresaw the end of California exceptionalism. And the two issues that he cited in 1949 were water and power. That, that those two issues would force California to become more integrated with its Western neighbors. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And uh, his prescience, th th that's only two of the areas that he focused on, but certainly um, he, he, he foresaw that in 1949. Any, any thoughts on water in this? Uh... Well, I mean, you know, we're going through this, we're at the very early stages of this change in how we produce and consume energy. And, and everybody talks about how there are going to be these big water wars and, 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 and what we do with water is going to be uh, a huge uh, political issue for the foreseeable future. The answer would be, if we're ever going to be independent, we're going to have to figure out how to use a hell of a lot less water. I mean, that's the answer. Um, because otherwise we can't do it. Or figure out how to transform what we have along the coast. Yes. For example, you couldn't continue to get water from the Colorado River necessarily. Right. There are no Colorado tributaries in, in California. That's yeah. a bit of a problem. There'd have to be a change in technology. I mean, you're talking about yeah. desalinization. Sure. But, but I mean, we fundamentally would have to figure out how to be self-sufficient uh, with or respect we could, to water. we could buy off Arizona and Colorado with <laughs> promise of free goods or something. Or we'll, we'll only spin off free iPads. <laughs> we'll only spin off 48 states. We'll keep Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my name is Buncha. There's been a lot of talk about the immigration issue. I was wondering the opinion of the recent uh, Poisoner attack ad mm -hmm. um, criticizing his opponent's uh, immigration policy, which is similar to President Obama's. Well, it's a loser. Um, I mean, you, I mean you know, if you want to talk about the Poisoner campaign, if anybody can define for me what he's doing, please tell me. <laughs> um, you know, I've, look, I've run three campaigns for governor, two for U.S. Senate. Some have won, some have lost. I know Steve Poisoner very well. It's a big mystery to me. Uh, I will tell you that, and I, you know, was here in the, in the mid-90s when we had uh, Prop 187. Um, and, and I can assure you that whatever Poisoner's thinking is inconsistent with what we're seeing in polling. I see a lot of polling. I do a lot of focus groups. Um, the reason that illegal immigration uh, was a, a political football in 1994 was that, and I remember sitting in focus groups and, and I'm watching these middle-class white voters in Walnut Creek of all places and get red in the face, literally, and pound the table because they're angry at the legal immigrants who are coming in and taking their jobs. Now think about that for a second. These are middle-class white people in Walnut Creek. They hire those people, the illegal immigrants, <laughs> to wash their cars and cut their lawn and they're sitting in focus groups and they're pissed as hell because those, those people are coming in and taking our jobs, right? There was, a, a, there was a, 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 an economic downturn in 1994, and as we all know, if we're going to talk about the history of California, when the economy turns down, historically, we pick on somebody. Yeah. I mean, we even picked on white people in the 1930s, right? But we pick on somebody. <laughs> and uh, what you saw in 1994 was a very uh, politically troubled uh, Pete Wilson, who was in a lot of peril, seize on that issue because it's how he beat Kathleen Brown, ultimately. What you find very interesting now is that Steve Poisoner is, is rattling that and nobody's paying attention. I mean, look at the polls. Illegal immigration is not an irrelevant issue in California. It doesn't have the salience that it did certainly in the mid-90s. And so I can assure you, if case you're worried about it, I think it's largely falling on deaf ears. I'd be stunned if it turned into a major issue. 
And it wh- is why? I and mean, why is that? Why isn't it becoming a big issue? It is a, we're in a bad economic time. Twelve and a half percent. You're right. You're absolutely right. So, so it's the exception to my rule, right? Uh, <laughs> we're not picking on anybody. Um, well, we are picking it. We're, well, yeah. yeah, but it's like you know, we're not. I think it's, there's it's a usual the point. gang yeah. of suspects. You know, yeah. public yeah. employee. No, I, I'm actually very interested in this question. You know a lot more about the polling data, but what yeah. I what I know is very much consistent with what yeah. you say. And I think when I was making the point that California could have a big impact on na- on breaking the national immigration policy deadlock, it's in part because I think what we see nationally is that the biggest rise in anti-immigrant sentiment is in the new gateway states where uh, they suddenly are experiencing an influx of new people. And although it's not rationally connected to the economic downturn and to their difficulties and unemployment and so on and so forth, but it's easy to blame the the newest thing. And the newest thing is the presence of all these people. We don't have a new phenomenon in, in California. On the country, we have a lot of experience. And by now, all of us know people who we think of as model neighbors and citizens, uh, and it, it's a very different attitude. Of course, there's still, but if you look, if you break down the uh, polling data that I've seen by generation, for, for example, it's yeah. really, uh, it's, it's an older generation that's still worried about this. Yes. Younger people basically accept this as a positive. So I think California, could play a leadership role in the congressional uh, setting uh, because public opinion here would support its representatives in doing so. Yeah, I think that, that, that to reassure you, I'm sorry, this is now a minority white state, okay? I mean, in terms of, pop, not voters, but in terms of population, whites are in a minority. Pretty soon this is gonna be a majority Latino state in terms of population. And, and I think it's what you just said, it's like, um, and I've seen people say this in focus groups. We'd have to love each other, but we're here and we're going to have to coexist, so let's just deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't so much concerned that he, that he was doing well. I, I was just like, it, it just seemed like a very odd attack ad to me because, yes. yeah, I mean, Ob- Obama's policy seemed like, fine to me. And most of the people I talked to in California are like, yeah, that's, that's good. Why is he saying this well, like a negative? Well, he's it just trying, sounded really bizarre. He's trying to run a, a Republican primary, right. yeah, which, which has a demographic, uh, he believes, yeah. that, that is... is in the, in the wheelhouse for that issue. But, yeah. um, you know, just quickly, I, I can't, it, it's, this is a little off the, the, the topic, but it, it's amazing to me that to see Arizona go down mm-hmm. the road of what California did in 1994 <laughs> and, and probably experience exactly the same thing yeah. that, that, that we saw here. Uh, I'm speaking of this very draconian law that, that was just passed by the Arizona State Legislature, the, the Paper Please Act, where, where uh, you know, law enforcement would be forced, essentially, to, to pull over anyone they have a suspicion of being undocumented and, and, and ask them for their papers. Hi, good evening. My name is Becca James. And first of all, Professor, thank you for bringing up the topic of immigrant integration. Um, the tenor of that debate is so much more balanced and, and refreshing to what we normally get um, on the topic of immigration. Um, but my question for you, and the panel, most of you are from the Bay Area and Los Angeles. Um, I'm actually from the San Joaquin Valley originally, and um, it's a place that you drive through on your way to the Bay Area <laughs> and, and never stop. Um, but people up there are concerned with the tyranny of the majority in the urban areas. And I'm just 
my question for you is, what is the role of California's rural areas, or is there a role for California's rural areas in the future and, and um, creating the future of, of California? Well, it's among our top exports, I mean, um, uh, the salad bowl of the nation. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, we would be in, in, in a lot of trouble. It's also the locus of, of these water wars right now. Um, uh, I, I would imagine there's a, a major role. The, the, the group that was talking about uh, this breakup, not surprisingly, was from that, that area, from the San Joaquin Valley, and, and, uh, and, and wanted to, you know, Go rogue and more independent than uh, than even uh, you know people in the urban areas wanted to, but uh, but that's always been a divide, right? I mean, yeah, I mean you know where are you from this in the San Joaquin Valley? Uh, I'm from Visalia. Visalia, okay, nice place. Um, my mom was born in Fresno. She got out of there. She went to Santa Cruz. Um, the uh, you know, look, here's the deal. If you, if you divide the state by media market, the Bay Area and L.A. are about 82%. And if you add Sacramento and, and San Diego, and I'm talking, again, multiple counties, media markets, it's about uh, 88% altogether. And then you add Fresno is 4%, Visalia is in the Fresno media market, and then there's every place else. So you're stuck because there's nobody there. And, and, and you're not going to have a lot of assembly members and you're not going to have state senators. And I mean, there are some, and particularly Democrats from the Valley get cut a lot of slack because we don't get a lot of Democrats in the Valley, so we let them do what they need to do to get elected. But uh, I think your real answer is you're going to have to give up the farms and build a lot of houses and have a lot of people and you'll get more seats. Abe, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to jump in on this? Yeah, the, the, you know, the perspective I have on this issue has to do with the subject that I worked on, which is international policy questions. And on that, it's interesting. Most of the books I've written, I've written the book and then I've tried to figure out what the title of the book is. Uh, but in, in this case, I came up with the title of the book very early in, in writing it, Global California. And as I did the research and started talking to people about it, several people told me, you know, it's a, that's a nice uh, phrase, but you're really only talking about the San Francisco Bay Area and Los Angeles. Uh, that doesn't, what, what you're talking about doesn't apply to the rest of the state. So I did more research and I went around the state. I went to the uh, Central Valley and the Inland Empire and the San Diego region and, and various parts of the state. And what I found was that in every one of the major regions of California, there are strong international connections and stakes and thinking about how to advance those issues, which is the subject I was addressing, is as important in Fresno and Modesto and, and uh, places like that in San Diego and San Bernardino. It's really uh, something that affects everybody in the state. So I'm turning that question around a little, but I think it's very important in that part of the state as well. Just uh, very quickly, um, you know, there may be an underlying problem here where people don't feel represented. And one of the reasons they might not feel represented is we have huge districts and nobody knows their representatives. And you know, uh, the, the point that Derry makes is not gonna be undone by that, but maybe if you knew your representative, and we didn't have state senate districts that were larger than congressional districts, and we didn't have 120 people or whatever it is trying 30, to represent. 38 million. Yeah, yeah, 38 million people, 
you might feel a little bit more connected to your government and then maybe this feeling of tyranny wouldn't be yeah. quite the bogeyman that it seems and to just be. one other quick thing and this just to get back to our topic uh, this is the blessing and the curse of california becoming its own country it's tremendous diversity on all levels you know whether it's not just ethnic diversity but the this this regional diversity uh which is why it's so hard for the state to get together on on so many of these issues hey my name is uh, josh kramer um i was wondering uh with november's marijuana possible marijuana reform laws um financially how can that affect us um do we have to give the federal government a cut of that money if they don't <laughs> really want it anyway <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and just how will this affect us clout-wise? I mean, it seems like an incredibly huge, bold move that's, you know, possibly illegal. If, if, if we can get away with that, how much more can we actually get away with? At what point can we really say, eh, we don't really feel like paying taxes back to you anymore? Mm. Well, go ahead. I, I knew the weed question was coming. Um, <laughs> you were at the Cow Palace talking about weed last weekend. Yeah, right, I went Peter? to the Cannabis Expo at the Cow Palace uh, <laughs> last weekend in San Francisco, and, I've, and, and the company I work for is publishing a book on this topic in the fall, so sort of got my snout in, in, in this right now. So, um, It's a huge industry, obviously. It's, it's uh, a cash crop that, that dwarfs wine, for example, um, it's about $115 billion nationally. Um, it would raise a lot of revenue at current prices. Maybe those prices wouldn't be sustained, you know, if it was totally legal. But on the tax question, what's interesting is what's happening. I don't know what's happening in L.A. I understand there's a lot happening and, and some not happening. But in the Bay Area, uh, the, the ordinances are being crafted and people are bending over backwards to pay extra taxes. Uh, the dispensaries are. They want to be seen as tax-paying, regulated, regular old industries. So withholding taxes is not their plan at all. Um, kicking in taxes and holding that out as a, as a prospect is a very important part of the, the strategy for full legalization, as I understand. I don't know if, how much would go to the feds. Um, you know, it is going to be an incredibly interesting issue if this passes and, and, and what the federal government is going to do. I mean, they, they've, they've presumably stopped the raids of the, the medical facilities. But, uh, you know, all bets are off if, 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 if this actually goes through. There's some question whether it will. Um, uh, the, the, the one thing I do want to say is you talk about taxes and the effect and everything. Um, the, the legislative analyst did a study and, and said that this would bring in to the state coffers maybe $1.2 billion. And we have like a $20 billion structural uh, budget deficit that will happen every year. So, uh, you know, be, be somewhat skeptical of the claims that, oh man, if we only just, you know, grew pot, sold it, you know, it's not quite going to be uh, the miracle worker here, but wouldn't Do, hurt. Doesn't that get right into the issue of being international uh, in our politics because couldn't we simply distribute to the world? <laughs> we, are, we already do. We do I, I was in uh, Belize several years ago, inter, interior Belize, uh, which, which was fairly remote. And I was talking to a, a, a guy and I said I was from uh, California. And he said, 
Oh, yeah, I know Humboldt County, man. <laughs> so, you know, we're nationwide, we're international, all right. Very good. We have a question to your oh, right Can I here. just add one more thing about present, uh, what was it, perilous remedies for present evils? California was actually the first state to criminalize marijuana in 1913. We've been ahead of the curve all the way around this issue. Thank you. My name's Nelson. Um, I just had a question as to why uh, states' rights or the 10th Amend Amendment hasn't been brought up. I would think this would be a perfect topic, ex especially when we're talking about marijuana laws. Um, I mean, I don't think we should be at the whim at, as to whoever's the president as to, to however they will conduct the policy. If we assert state rights and a 10th Amendment, wouldn't that be a way of curtailing uh, what they do. And I sort of get the feeling that uh, the panel's more focused on, I guess, expanding the autonomous power uh, state government has in California, more so than curtailing uh, the f power that the federal government has. My Tea Party friends are talking about the 10th Amendment. I yeah, saw Rick Perry on the cover of Time or Newsweek talking about the 10th Amendment. Resurgence of 10 uh, out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I'm the lawyer in the, on the panel, yeah, right? Yeah, and, I, right. And, and I teach it. <laughs> it's like, I don't have an answer. I mean, some, if somebody wants to make a 10th Amendment argument, they can try. We'll see what the court says. It's certainly what's being, being you know, put together uh, as an argument uh, on the health care uh, situation, which, um, you know, both Whitman and Poisoner want to, you know, fight it out in court, the, uh, the, the, the health care law that was passed based on at least in part on the fact that the, they want to assert Tenth Amendment rights for the, uh, for the state. What, what accounts for all this discussion, do you think, of sort of Tenth Amendment and regionalism? I noticed in the academy there are economists talking about countries get as big as ours, the regions start to break away and have distinct interests. Um, you know, there's a lot of writing about kind of regionalism. And well, I mean, there's so many things going on we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? Right, right. Um, first of all, you got a lot of pissed off people out there. Let me, the, the, one of the first questions you ask in a political poll is, on the whole, do you think the state or the country, whatever you're polling, is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? It's called the right track, wrong track question. And you can tell what the rest of the poll is going to tell you based on how happy or unhappy people are. And right now, if you ask Californians in a poll, do you think the state's headed in the right direction or the wrong direction, 77, 78% of the people say it's headed in the wrong direction. That's when revolutions happen. That's when Prop 13 gets passed. That's when we have a do-over in the governor's race. We just had a race and we elected a guy, but now we're not so sure, so we'll just do it over. Um, you know, we, we, we do something to, that's when illegal immigration comes up. And I think that most of my colleagues who run campaigns I mean, I have these conversations all, all the time. It's like, this is a very strange year, and we can't tell what's going to happen that, that reflects the strangeness. Are we going to legalize dope? Are we going to secede from, you know, the United States? Are we going <laughs> to declare war on I don't know who? Uh, <laughs> but, but you can't have voters as unhappy as they are now without having things like the Tea Party emerge. People are very scared of the economy. They're scared about national security. They're scared that the government can't even pass a budget. We're just plain scared. So um, um, I think that you see that's part of what's going on. I think yeah. another thing that's going on, I know, sorry if I go in here for a second, is look, we're going through incredible changes technologically. 
we were talking about this a little bit before we came up here. Um, um, in, in, in focus groups, uh, we ask people, what, what, is your, what is your major source of news? If we asked you here in the audience, you would have said two or three years ago, certainly before that, you would have said newspaper, TV, radio. A lot of you now would say the Internet. Um, and, and that may sound interesting and fun because the Internet's very exciting, but how the hell, if you're running a political campaign, do we, do we reach you if you don't watch TV, you don't read a newspaper, you, don't, you ignore the junk mail, and somewhere your, your head's into whatever Yahoo or whatever your homepage is, how do we say anything to you? So, so I think that um, this discomfort gets reflected in a lot of ways. You know, we should, I don't know, we should do all kinds of things. We should just tear everything up and do it over. But uh, it reflects the fact that we are going through the very early stages, I think, of, of a real revolution in how we all live, and it scares people. Okay, I think we better leave it there. But um, thank, uh, please join me in thanking these panelists.